Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds, including today's very special guest, my favorite director, Pedro Almodovar, whose beautiful and magnificent films have charmed and captivated audiences worldwide for decades. But before we dive in with Pedro, a conversation I'm buzzing for you to hear, I wanted to answer a listener question. Joaquin from Buenos Aires said, loved your Argentinian shows and asked, what are your top five music shows that you've attended? My gosh, that's really, that's a difficult one. I love going to lots of different concerts and seeing so many different artists. I mean, one of the first shows I ever went to was 50 Cent in Kosovo. And that will always be one of my favorite shows that I'd ever been to. I love 50 Cent. And that was very exciting. I just recently went to Perth to go and catch the last show of the Russian tour, Tim Impala's last tour, which was incredible. I loved that. Also, like a month ago, I went to Amsterdam and saw Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Morales and the Big Steppers tour, which was really, really great. I loved it. Felt like a theater production come to life on like a really big stage. I feel like Coldplay, I've seen them play quite a few times. I recently saw them in Bogota before I did my own show. And they always bring such an incredible energy and such a spectacle. Before the pandemic happened, actually, the last show I saw was Tove Lowe's concert in London. And she's just so free on stage and so fun. And I think seeing also your friends do their thing on stage, I I feel like this immense sense of pride and excitement. So that that was a a really fun show for me too. So I'm going to say those off the top of my head are my top five music shows that I've attended. Thank you so much to Joaquin. And please stay with me after this very short break when I'll return with an icon of cinema and pop culture, Pedro Almodovar. Welcome back. If I'm being honest, I don't know quite where to begin introducing Pedro Almodovar, so I'll start with my personal connection to him. His films have kept me company on the road all year. From women on the verge of a nervous breakdown to his recent pain and glory, I cannot get enough of his utterly unique lens on life. He's one of the sharpest, most singular minds working in cinema today. Pedro once said, Cinema became my true education. I've learned much more from films than in school and from priests. After watching the 1958 movie Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, he knew he wanted to pursue some sort of career in film. At just 16 years of age, he moved from rural Spain to Madrid, which he called a true oasis of freedom and culture. It was there as part of the countercultural art movement, La Movida, that he began movie making. Simply put, Pedro Almodovar is one of the world's best directors. His is an Oscar-winning, critically acclaimed career that has bolstered Spain's place in cinematic history and has also launched and supported the legacies of his muses, including names you'll know like Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and many more. His filmography is unequaled, a series of unrivaled peaks among titles such as All About My Mother, Volver, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, Bad Education, Parallel Mothers, and many, many more. Pedro's movies are camp, but emotionally resonant, glossy, but powerful, queer and comedic, but grounded and tragic. I don't know another director who successfully straddles the worlds of comedy and drama the way Pedro does. He has become truly beloved for the way he depicts women, 
queer folks, and gender non-conforming people in his stories. They're part of my films like they're a part of my life, Pedro has said of his LGBTQ characters. I had the privilege of speaking with Pedro recently for a conversation unlike any other I've had this season. Deep, funny, emotional, touching, personal, and universal all at once. Pedro warmed my heart and opened my eyes. We discussed his past, his present, and his future, the films he's made and the ones he hopes to make in the years ahead. Pedro's mother tongue is obviously Spanish, and although his English is amazing, he sometimes likes to switch to his native language. So you're also going to hear the voice of Carla, his wonderful translator, during this interview. And because I've been learning Spanish, I couldn't help but kick off our conversation by trying out my language skills. Don't at me if my grammar is terrible. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I'm so grateful to be able to say these words to you now. Please welcome this week's At Your Service guest, Pedro Almodovar. Hola, Pedro. ¿Cómo estás? Muy bien. <laughs> encantado, de, encantado de hablar contigo. ¿Hablas español? Uh, un poquito. Gracias por esta entrevista. Estoy muy, muy agradecida y emocionada de poder hablar contigo. Mi español no es perfecto, Qué pero bien. estoy estudiando un poco todos los días um, y tus películas me ayudan sí. cada vez a aprender y practicar mi español ah. un poquito más. <laughs> Qué bien, qué bien. No, no, lo hablas, lo hablas muy bien. Se te entiende muy bien. Oh, gracias. I, I felt like a child on Christmas morning when I woke up today to do this interview. So thank you so much. And no, no, you're welcome. I'm very happy to, yes, to talk to you. And hello to Pedro's translator, Carla, who's also joining us on this call. Hi, Dua. Lovely to be here. Thank you both so much for doing this with me. Pedro, how are you? How's Madrid right now? You mean how is my life now in this moment? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm finishing a new movie that I shot in the summer. It's something very different. I mean, very different. I mean, this is another genre that I never did before. It's a Western. And now we are waiting for the digital tricks and the music is already done and the edition. And then, I mean, I think in like four weeks, it will be finished and it will be when we can mixed all the sounds and the music and all that. And the protagonists, because it's in English, you know, um, are Ethan Hawke and uh, Pedro Pascal. And I'm very wow. happy with both of them. Wow, that sounds amazing. That must be really exciting to do, to do something um, a little bit different. I mean, I've watched Pain and Glory, which I know contains some real details about your childhood in it. And, and I was hoping maybe you could take my listeners back in time and tell me a little bit about, you know, what what life was like growing up for you, you know, as a young boy in rural Spain and what was life like before your film career began? Mi niñez es algo que no he pensado en ella. I have mostly not thought about my childhood, especially during my first 40 years of life. And that might mean that I didn't like it all that much. Mm. There does come a moment, though, where it is worthwhile to look back in the past. And that moment arrived for me around 2000. And two movies came out of that, The Bad Education and Volver. And, and you know, also, I mean, the sequence that you talk in Pain and Glory, it was like a part of, uh, of Volver because mm. that child, it was someone that we don't see in the picture. But really, I mean, the story is, is said from the point of view of that child that I was myself, in the patios 
of La Mancha, listening to the woman talking about everything, about ghosts, because there is a big culture of death, a female culture of death, you know, and also they sing, they make artisan things. And Volver um, really is, is, a, is a movie that talks about memories of my childhood. In the moment that I write about, I discovered that it was much more happier than I thought. I mean, it was only a dark part that that was the reason that I never wanted to to look to my childhood. And it was uh, when that child goes to the school uh, and is bad educated by the priest. That mm. was, well, in a way, you know, it was the good part of that was that I was the singer of, of a chorus, of a, the soloist. And the, well, you are a singer. You can imagine how wonderful it was just to be in a mess singing Mozart, singing, I mean, the best musician in the history. I mean, the bad part, it was that, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there happened many ugly things mm. between the priest and, and, and the kids. And that was something that I talk about in bad education. Mm. I can totally understand that. And I feel like you're very meticulous in your detail and you bring certain parts of your life into your stories. And I'm also really interested in La Movida and the, the time when you moved to Madrid and when you first started as a filmmaker in, in the 1970s and you took your Super 8 camera and you started working with your friends on your earliest projects. Can you tell me a little bit about that scene in Madrid? There's always moments when I, you know, read stories or I watch videos or I watch movies and I go, wow, I wish I lived through that time and that experience when there was so much energy and creativity. And I wonder what that was like for you and what Madrid was like in the 70s for a young man who was adventurous and creative and curious. Yeah, it was wonderful, you know, uh, to be young at that period. Uh, because suddenly, I mean, uh, not, not suddenly, it took like two years. After Franco died, I mean, after the dictatorship ends, suddenly Madrid and the whole Spain explode. It was a big explosion of all kind of freedom. Mm. And um, above all, for the young people, it was something that is difficult to explain. It was so wonderful. I mean, living in a dictatorship of 40 years. Then, you know, the main thing, it was that this kind of freedom, this kind of new behavior that we could live in, everything was mixed. There were not prejudices. The censorship disappeared. And it was a big, big, big explosion. It was called La Movida. It was referring to the music because... Um, and so you could really sort of say that La Movida is really recorded in our songs because movies at the time were very expensive to make, but songs weren't. And that's what really still exists with us of, of that time period. And uh, because I, I, I have also a group called Almodóvar Matlamara. We made like two or three records. It was a kind of parody of the punk singers, <laughs> but with with a lot of parody because I couldn't sing. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I can understand what do you feel. I mean, my audience is not as big as yours. But um, when we have an event, we, we have a concert, 
we, it was always sold out. So I remember what it means to sing in front of a thousand people. This is my limit. And it was amazing. I think I recommend it to everyone just to have that experience. Mm. Because, you know, for a director, I mean, your work is like a year before the movie uh, release. So you never, you never feel the reaction, the, above all, the immediate reaction of what you are doing. But with music and in the sport, also, I mean, the sportman or the singer, you feel immediately, I mean, that dialogue between you and the audience. And that's an incredible experience. I mean, the young people of that moment, we imitate many, uh, many other artists. So we were obsessed with the British New Wave. That was the first model, the British New Wave. Uh, Susie and the Bansies and all that, you know. Yep. And immediately also the punk and uh, also, well, the American version of punk. I mean, the more underground musician of that moment, from Velvet Underground to Blondie to all of them. So what we did, it, we tried to imitate them, but it was with the material that it was belonged to us. So the result, it was not an imitation. It was something very original and very alive and very amusing. So cool. I think this whole like merging of worlds and being creative in, in more ways than one is so important. Like if it's something that you love, if it's something that you want to experience, it's something that you should do and put your mind and your heart into it in whatever it is. I think creativity has no bounds. And so to hear you say that, I think is inspiring for a lot of people to just go out there and do the things that they're very passionate about and, you know, just explore a new medium as well which is really cool and really fun. When did you gain the confidence to make your first ever film? In 1980s, you did Pippi, Luthi, Bomb. What lessons did you learn from that the first time? So I actually really started, had already been doing a lot of Super 8 films because my vocation as a filmmaker comes really from my childhood. I was always thinking about making films. And so sort of as a result of my sort of Super 8 career, there was a, an underground magazine that asked me to do a fotonovela, which is sort of like a, a series of shorts that was kind of underground punk. And then when I did and when I wrote the fotonovela, I thought, well, I think I would like to make it, to make a movie with this. So I changed of mind, but it was already punk. So it should be very dirty, you know, because that was the idea of being very punk. And then we made with a lot of friends, a kind of crowdfunding to get money. And then we get like $3,000. And that was the only budget. We didn't have budget enough even to do it. We shoot it in 16 millimeters just to reach a format more commercial. And, you know, it was very funny to do it. Because, like, I mean, I shoot during a year and a half. I mean, I start in, in June 1979 and I finish in June or July of the 1980-something. And, you know, everybody thought that it was a party that I was doing every weekend because I used to shoot during the weekends because I was working in the telephone company at the same time. And it was very funny for all of them. The only professional, it was Carmen Maura, that really 
it was the real actress. And she knew that I wanted to make a real movie. But they thought that it was something funny to do. And it was just part of the party. And they were very surprised when they could see the movie a year and a half later in one, in one theater in Madrid. Because, I mean, for me, it was something very serious. Of course, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the language. But, you know, the cinematic language is something that you can learn doing it. And I think, actually, this is the best school to do it. So I know that, yeah, the movie has a lot of defeats. It was made in a way like being Flamingo of John Waters. Then didn't matter if they have some problem of record or something like that. I mean, the important thing it was just to tell the story, to be understood, and to put at the end the word end. It was my obsession. <laughs> I love that. That's a really, um, really amazing, amazing story. And I think that's the beauty of it is the kind of punk rock element. As long as you get the story across, as long as you get your message and your point, then that's also the the beauty of the artistry. I'm very interested because I feel like very few directors, very few American directors get asked regularly about their relationship to America. Whereas you, one of Spain's most prominent directors, I feel like always gets asked about your relationship to Spain. Why do you think that is? Or maybe to put it more simply, why do you think that your career is so intertwined with your country? I do think that, in fact, starting from 1979 to now, that my own story, along with Spain's story, are intertwined. They do flow in a parallel, in a parallel track. Yes, and I think really what you can say is that I've never left Spain. And because I've never left Spain, I've been someone who's always been very much impregnated by the culture that surrounds me, by the reality that surrounds me. So even though my films, per se, have, are not based in reality, they do absorb that reality. They absorb the reality of the country, of the politics, of my family, of my friends, of things that are happening, particularly in Madrid. And for example, if I think back to Pepe Lucibom and the person I was when I made that film, I was a much more fun person to be around, much more jovial. And you could say the same thing of Spain right now. Spain is a little less jovial and less fun to be around at the moment. Do you feel that your early adventures in movie making like the first era of your career, as you've called it, was like a response to the end of the Franco regime. You know, I imagine that anybody under the fringes of an authoritarian regime, once they feel like they've been freed, then in a way you can kind of create what you want, be how you want, live life in a way that you really wanted to. Was that something that you felt was true during that time? Absolutamente liberado. Absolutely. I felt absolutely liberated. And one could say that for, you know, even though Franco died already at an old age, it had been at least five years that we were expecting his death. In fact, there's this kind of urban legend that says that every single Spanish household had a bottle of champagne waiting in their fridge. And when the moment came, at least the majority of Spanish households celebrated. And, uh, you know, if you think about the earlier movies, like Pepe Lucy, Labyrinth of Passion, Dark Habits, What I Have I Done to Deserve This, Matador, Love, Desire, and so on, they were impossible to do before. I mean, that was the result that Franco has died. 
I am one of the example of the new democracy in Spain. And I could do that because we were living in a democracy. So it was a complete liberation in every sense, but not only a liberation is yet, um, I mean, I could exist at that moment. If not, then I think that I never did a movie or uh, I should go to France or England just to try to survive and and make something. But um, I am one of the result of the new democracy in Spain, my movies, I mean, because of the freedom. You received your first Academy Award nomination for Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown in the late 1980s. I love that film so much. Was the moment that you realized the impact you and your work were making, you know, moves around the world? Like, when was that first moment or was there a different turning point before that that helped you realize how far your reach had become? Pues, la verdad es que I would say you would have to think about 83, 84 was a moment in the history where people around the world really started to pay attention to Spain. Spain had been, if you'd like, somehow kidnapped for many years, kind of forgotten by the world. And it was around that time that the mass media started to look towards Spain, sort of noticing the change and asking themselves what was now coming out of Spain. And uh, many journalists came to Madrid uh, we made, I mean, I mean, the people from La Movida, we made hundreds of <laughs> of interviews with many, many different medias of everywhere. And they got a lot of fun. They were so much in drag that they, I mean, I read some of the articles and they were crazy. I mean, you couldn't understand <laughs> anything because they were already or drunk or because, you know, because it was party by party. And that was the <laughs> the place that we were, we were made the interviews and uh, they never understood anything, but they felt in their blood and in their flesh how funny how amusing was the night in Madrid. So, I mean, I was very lucky that I was born in that period because it was the first time that internationally um, were a curiosity about what was happening in Spain. And then when they came here and they discovered my movies, immediately, I mean, I remember the year 1984, the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art of New York, have a section every year called New Directors, New Films. And they are very curious about those, what is happening about, uh, about this, the new cinema in the world. And it was very successful, so successful that we sold it to a distribution company and the movie could release, you know, a very limited release, not, a, I mean, like 20 cinemas. In, but it was enough for me, it was the first time. We'll be right back. One of the things that I and many, many audiences love about you is the way that you tell stories about women and about queer people going as far back as your first film and as recently as 2021's Parallel Mothers. What drew you to to tell those sorts of stories when they might have been considered countercultural, and what continues to draw you to them now? 
before answer this question, I would like talking about uh, parallel models. I would like to tell you that you were present in the in the shooting because there is a sequence where Penelope Cruz is in a photo session and then and is taking pictures of a transsexual. And the transsexual woman said, this is the first time that a female journal give me the cover. And, you know, one of the posts that I said to this girl to imitate, it was you. In what beautiful picture uh, when you are making Pepe Jean publicity, <laughs> that you are in Jean, dile que está como apoyada en las rodillas, el torso para atrás, y la mano So you can watch the film again. There's a, he's talking about a photograph where you're on your knees, sort of leaning back with your arm above your head, and we can see your belly button. And the actress actually duplicates uh, this image. That's unbelievable. Do you remember that picture for Pepe Jean? Yes, yes, I remember. I just can't, I can't believe, I can't believe what you're telling me. I, um, I've gone very hot now and it's, it's very so, incredible. You know, the inspiration come from everywhere, could come from your publicity. And also, you know, as a child, I was raised by women because in, in, in I mean, in, it was, I'm, I'm talking about the 50s. So it was a poor period for Spain. And then I was always with my mother. And if my mother couldn't take me uh, with her, uh, she left me with the neighbors. I remember myself being like four years old, five, six, always listening to women. And, and also watching women really struggling, very strong with that bad situation that our country was passing, you know. And it was the post-war. And it was because of these very strong women that the, que el país pudo avanzar y, y It was because of the strong women that the country was able to evolve uh, and, and, and overcome the hardships. So one of the things, for example, even though they're not contemporary women, I brought their attitudes into my contemporary women specifically their strength, and not just their physical strength, but also sort of their emotional and psychological strength, and the fact that they approached life without judgment, because in some ways they were much closer to nature than what men were. And so, for example, even though the women of this region, right, are, you could, lived under a patriarchal, almost machista society, they were owners of their own lives. And this is something that my women in my films inherit is, is a kind of moral autonomy. So, and it doesn't matter, right, if they're singers or if they're nuns or if they're prostitutes, they all share the same quality. So there's something very particular about being both a director and a writer, and it is that it endows you with a kind of power. And I'm not talking about any kind of political power, but something more like an ideological power. It allows you to impose on your stories and the world you're creating the vision that you want. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the world that I was living in was like the world that I represent, but it's my vision of that world or my experience of that world. And so when I came to impose that on my women, what you see is this sort of variation of women in a world that is a world that I see, and that's where you also see sort of the, the transsexuals or genderqueer people. I gave them the place and power that they had in my own life. Um, 
And I was able to represent that. I think what I really see is a presentation of a more normalized world, is what it, or at least what we want a normalized world to be. And the way that it's presented, I think, is is amazing because the characters never feel like they have to prove something. They just are unapologetically themselves. They arrive fully formed. And I think that's really inspiring. And, and, and about the women too, I, I feel a deep connection to all of that and the, and the stories and, you know, you listening to women and seeing how they express themselves. Maybe I feel a little bit like that about the women in, in Kosovo and especially what I experienced when I, I, I lived in Kosovo for a little while. My family's from there and I think I felt a same kind of sense of strength from the women that had overcome such hardships. How long did you live in Kosovo? I lived there from the age of 11 to 15, so quite formative years of my life for like four years. And did you go back sometime? I, I go back every year. We now do a festival over there and we have a foundation. And, you know, for me, my hometown is very important. Oh. Yeah. Very good. Roots are very important mm. for us. Not to, not to put you on the spot. But if someone was to ask you to speak about your own work and how you would describe an Almodovar film, because I've watched so many of them, I feel like they have many similarities and they all share such common DNA, but I think every single one is quite different, you know, from the last. And so I was wondering how you would describe one of your films. Ooh, this is very difficult because... To, to make a movie something very conscious, but there are parts that you are not completely conscious. I mean, when I'm writing, I know the first idea, but part of the development of the script, sometimes is I'm not conscious about what I'm doing or I'm conscious in another, in another way. I know what I want. I know very much about the characters that I'm telling the story, but I... I, I, I I really, I don't know how to, to make a definition of my movies because also they were changing. I mean, during the 80s to the 90s and to the 90s to the 10th century and even to now. I mean, they are more women, more female characters than male characters. Usually, the female characters, I give them a lot of moral autonomy and the... Los caracteres, los caracteres masculinos son más débiles y más aburridos. Well, my male protagonists are weaker and a bit more boring, really, eh, than my female protagonists. So humor has always been really important in the films, but also action, particularly my characters are driven by the passion that they feel towards other characters. And I think those two elements define, in a, in a very general manner, the films that I have made. So some other major themes I would say that I follow in my work is, of course, I'm always interested in independent, contemporary independent women who are free. I'm quite interested in the world that exists between mothers and daughters. You know, I think you could tell endless stories about that particular bond. I'm interested in themes that have to do with pleasure and creation, and specifically maybe the origin of creation, how that affects and infects the life of the artist. It's very fascinating to me, you know, your movies deal with so many themes, you know, love, sex, politics, family, faith, art. And like you just mentioned, 
you know, a, a deep theme of women and mothers. And can you tell me a little bit about your relationship you had with the woman of your life, you know, starting from your mother, Francesca, who perhaps is the original muse? Sí, yo tenía, tenía muy buena relación eh, con ella, pero... So I had a very good relationship with my mother, but my mother coming from this very strong generation that I have described to you, at some point I had to actually claim my independence, and particularly at the moment when I decided to move to Madrid. I, I think it's the, it's the one argument that I had with her. So many of my mothers are inspired on my own mother, mothers like those of The Flower of My Secret or Volver, Perhaps not the mothers of parallel mothers. Those are a different, uh, a different kind of, of mother. But a lot of the dialogues that I use in my films come directly from my mother. My mother was very fun and very funny. And so I've stolen dialogues from her. Even though she didn't receive a formal education in the 40s, she was very intelligent and very inventive. For example, you know, even through the poverty that we lived in through the 1950s, she always figured out and made up ways to get us moving along, right, to allow us to live. And she is not, for example, the, the typical artist's mother in the sense that you think that, you know, she would be the, the proud mother bragging about my fame or my interviews or, or my public persona. She was almost the opposite of that. She was very worried about my future, and she didn't think that I had picked a stable career. Uh, so it was probably not until after Women on the Verge that she perhaps began to think that I had, in fact, chosen the right career. No, un ejemplo, por ejemplo... Aparece en so Madres here's Paralelas, an example, and you que, actually que see it represented real. in Parallel Mothers. Eh, you know, during the 1940s and 50s, there was a, a, a huge migration, and my family moved from La Mancha to Extremadura looking for work. And we moved to a town, and just as it's represented in the film, where most people were illiterate. And my mother came up with this idea that I should be the one who could teach the young boys how to write. She She got me to do letter writing for some of the women at first or, 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 or reading their letters. Uh, but at some point, she realized, you know, I could actually teach the young men how to write. And so this is part of her inventiveness. And the way that the exchange happened was maybe I taught lessons in exchange for spices or in exchange for oranges or in exchange for something to be done around the house. And it was all done with the purpose of bettering our family's life. And I'm always kind of in awe of my mother's inventiveness and resourcefulness around this topic. You've been called a real actor's director, which means that you're praised regularly for the absolutely incredible performances that you're able to get out of your muses, like Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, the incredible Rossi De Palma, and so many more. And I want to know, Pedro, what is the magic touch when it comes to directing your performers? How do you get them to deliver such beautiful work? And this isn't a pitch, but if I was lucky enough to be, you know, taught or rehearsed by you in some way, what would you expect me to do as my director or an eye of you? Well, I mean, at the beginning, you this is very important to make a good casting. I mean, just to cast someone that is good for that character. And, um, well, you know, my, my way is based in a lot of rehearsals. I rehearse a lot with the actors because usually the actors are not like the perfect impersonation for the character that you wrote. 
because when you are writing, it's something abstract. They don't have faces. They don't. And then when you choose an actor or an actress, what I do is rehearse and adapt the character to the person that is going to do it. And at the end of one month of rehearsing, you know, that person, I mean, that Penelope or Antonio or Rosie de Palma or whoever, then, you know, is the perfect actor to make that character. Because, I mean, my work of directing is like a tailor. I mean, I made something that fit them very well and they are the only one to do it. But then I need time for that. I mean, in Spain, I don't, I don't have any problem because, I mean, for example, Penelope also loves to, to rehearse a lot and depends on the actor. Because, for example, Antonio doesn't like to rehearse. And, you know, everyone is different. But what I like him, I mean, remembering uh, when I talked to him, when I, when I worked with him in early 80s, I mean, he was very young. He was 21. And uh, what I wanted, you know, for him, it was his spontaneity, his instinct. O sea, su instinto, sí. So in the case of Antonio, he had almost a, an animal-like instinct. So I didn't want him to be studying his roles. I really wanted him to incorporate him instinctively because he had that talent. And for example, I mean, now that I made this Western with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal, then I discovered that um, they used to do it in a very different way. I mean, they used to prepare the characters. They don't rehearse so much. And I asked them, and then I pushed them to know the text, I mean, the dialogues, just to make these rehearsals. And it seems to me that the American actors and actresses, they work in a different way than I do. I mean, the light is important, the music is imp very important. I mean, all, the, all these elements are very important. I mean, just to narrate one story. But the face of the story are the actors and the voice of the characters belongs to the actors and the movement, the way they move, that belong to the actors. So it is really very, very important. I think they are the more important thing among the other elements uh, to make a movie. So I give them all the time they need. And you know, the actors like to be observed because then they give up. I mean, they are ready to do everything without a sense of being ridiculous because they know that I'm watching and I will not allow that they can be absurd or ridiculous. So they feel really more free with me. I see, I see, just watching the movies of, of, of then, that I'm very lucky because with me, they dare to do everything I ask without any sense of being ridiculous. It's amazing. And it's a, it's a luxury also to have the time to be able to do that in pre-production, to have all the rehearsal time. And it's clear it's very important in order for the actors to really embody the character that you wrote. I, um, I'd love to know more about this, um, this short film, this, this Western with Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal. What else can you tell me about this story? And what does it tell you about modern masculinity, you know, at the moment? 
Pues um, hablar del western es algo que so tengo prohibido. So he's 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 not allowed to say a okay. lot about the western, but he's going to say something because you are Dua Lipa and he loves you. <laughs> um, the title is A Strange Way of Life. It will release in May because it will open in Cannes Festival, and then we have to to wait till that moment. But of course, it's, it's a western, and of course, it's about masculinity. But you know, I don't want I don't want to classify it, but I don't know exactly what uh, the people is gonna say about the western, and that this is a queer western, in the sense that there are two men that they love each other and they behave in that situation in an opposite way. It's about masculinity in a deep sense because, you know, the Western is, is, a, is a male genre. So this is very Western in the sense that they are, son pistoleros, sale un rancho, sale... Um, el, and so the film has a lot, la, what I can la, tell you about the film is that it has el, a lot of the elements of the Western. It has the gunslinger, it has the ranch, it has the sheriff, it has the town, it has the showdown. But what it has that most Westerns don't have is the kind of dialogue that I don't think a Western film has ever captured between two men. And now I think I'm telling you a little bit too much. <laughs> Okay, that that is that's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing, and and I'm very excited to see to see the movie. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. While we're in a break, why don't you take a moment to subscribe for free to At Your Services newsletter, Service Ninety Five, at www.service95.com. We'll be right back. I want to touch on a major milestone that happened to you recently. The Academy Award Museum in Los Angeles recently installed a really impressive exhibition on your work in one of the wings. And at the time it opened, you said that it was a very strange sensation. And for the first time, it felt like you were a part of popular culture, being inside a museum of this size. And at this point of your incredible, incredible career, you know, what does that sort of recognition mean to you? And when you looked back on your own filmography, when you were, you know, helping prepare the exhibition, what did you learn about yourself in the process? Pues, realmente, realmente yo no veo so, mis películas de I will start with saying that I don't Entonces, tend to para, watch my films para, again after I make my films. So in preparation de, for this, um, for the Academy Museum, I had to watch all of my films. Uh, and then I subsequently had to decide what themes repeated themselves, such that I was able to then create the montages that you saw and then place them in conversation with each other. So each of the different screens was in conversation or in dialogue with a very different screen. And so the thing that I realized retroactively, and I don't tend to look at my films retroactively, is that I've, I've been very happy with the films that I have made in my life. I was able to, even though the themes sort of change from film to film and are different from film to film, I could really begin to sort of find myself identified with the stories that I've told and the films that I've put on screen, with the colors, with the elements, right? I, I, so what I can say is that it's the first time that I felt truly satisfied with my career, to have been able to imagine the images 
that I've imagined and put on screen. And this is unusual because as a film director, most of what I live is the anxiety of uncertainty. I'm always looking forward to the next film. So it doesn't matter that I've made 22 films and two shorts. I'm always worried that the next film that I'm making is not going to live up to my expectations or other people's expectations of the films. Because if there is any way that I can define the process of being a film creator is uncertainty. I'm always living in a state of uncertainty. And every time that I approach film, there's something new and something different that I'm looking at. And, I'm, and I realize that I'm very lucky for the ways in which I've been able to make my films completely independently, that I have not had to make any concessions to anyone for my vision. And for this, I am very grateful. It must be a, a wonderful feeling to see all your work and to feel really proud of the journey that it took to get there. I feel like in some ways I can relate to the feeling of uncertainty, of always being worried about what's the next step and how that's going to feel and how people might react. But it's an incredible exhibition. And I don't know, I, I, I'm very happy that you felt that way about your own work because I feel like as, as a creative, you can be your own worst critic, which sometimes can be healthy and can work in your favor. And sometimes it can be very difficult to and constantly create something new uh, with that in the back of your mind. Before I finish, I want to end on a deceptively simple question, which is what's next and what does the future hold for you? I mean, I'm working and I'm very developed in two different scripts because I always have more than one. Then at the end, I'm, I can make the choice. One is in Spanish and the name is Bitter Christmas, which is a song of a Mexican singer that I don't know if you know, Isabella Vargas. Is um, mm. I think I, I have to send you some records of hers because it, she was really, really, I don't know, it's, it was a, a mix of Billie Holiday and Edith Piaf, but in Mexico. That was very, very strong women. And one of her songs, it was bitter Christmas and talk about that a man leave a woman in December. And so that's why well, no, I, I, I cannot tell the story. And so that is in Spanish and this is almost done. I mean, I have like the second raft. And then I have another story that I cannot say the name that is, is finished by now, and that happens in the United States. So I don't know which one will be the first, I mean, the new one. But I think now, I mean, my feelings now is that I want to make both of them. You know, I don't, I don't know names. And because, you know, you, you know, since the moment that they are not contracts, you know, it's very difficult to talk about actors, eh, about all that thing, of you know. Course. My, my, my brother, who is my producer, prohibited me because I'm very talkative and I say everything <laughs> that <laughs> to wait till everything is under contract. <laughs> yes, but I'm, of course. I will be busy, let's say, very busy uh, the next two years. And I hope to meet you and to see you alive. Uh, I was busy. I was busy when you were, when you were in Madrid in June, but I really want to see you on stage and to see you personally. I would absolutely love that. 
I have lots of friends in Madrid, so I end up coming quite often. So maybe next time I'm there, I can, I can message you and we can have dinner or something. That would mm-hmm. be, that oh, would yes. be really, really wonderful. I'm very excited about all your new projects. I'm, I'm a big, big fan. So I'm always waiting for the next, <laughs> for the next thing. I, I normally finish my conversations by asking my guests for some recommendation lists and I'm going to ask you for two lists. And the first one is, you've spoken so much about directors who've inspired you as a young filmmaker. And I'd love to know five newer directors who inspire you today. Well, I'm a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, for example. I also admire the movies or a French director, a woman, Claire Denise. I also love Kore Eda movies. One of them, it was the shoplifters that it won uh, in Cannes, the first award. I'm thinking about Cannes. I also love Titan, a movie by a female character, but a female very strong, uh, a very daring, uh, Julia Ducournau. And uh, let me think, because there are more. And I love also Bon Joon-ho, and I'm expecting, I mean, his next movie after Parasites. Even in Parasite, we were always okay. nominated, and he was the only one <laughs> to give the awards. <laughs> but I love him, and I love the movie he does. And also, I, I, I love Punch and Walk, is in, I think is uh, South Korean, and now not here, but in United States you can see his last movie, uh, the uh, decision to leave, something like that, no, and uh, the Coin Brothers, even that they are separate now. No, I'm I'm a good cinephile. I used to go at least uh, twice to the theaters and to see the movie in a big screen, as big as possible. And, you know, I'm defending mm. very fiercely that uh, you have to see the movies in a theater because, you know, that capacity of hypnosis that the movies have only happens when the screen is much bigger than your house or your dining room. So, I mean, I know that is not what is happening now, with the presence of the platforms, but I always defend the cinematic experience in a theater. Even, you know, if the movies are not great, I like to go at least twice. I couldn't agree more with you. I think there's something to be said about seeing something on the big screen. You feel like a big wave of emotion that you definitely won't get from watching it on a TV or a laptop. And I think it's quite sad what's happening at the moment with cinema because I feel like we need to champion that experience more because it is so unique and so beautiful and, and a really fun moment to also share with people around you. You know, to be able to make an event out of going and seeing a movie, I think is is really special. For um for my last list, I'd love to know what films you would consider true masterpieces that anyone that has a pulse should watch. There are many, many masterpieces. It's very difficult to decide it and to be a fair with cultures and directors and, you know. But, uh, for example, I, I would recommend Viridiana, 
It is directed by an Spanish director, Louis Buñuel, the more famous Spanish director of all of them. And it's an absolute masterpiece. Then the classics like The Godfather, I think it should be seen on a big screen. And this is a masterpiece too. And the, we have to make a choice in the French cinema. I mean, Godard just died like a month ago. Then I think it's a very good idea to, to revisit his first movie, Abu de Souffle. I don't know how is the name in, in, in English. It was also a remake of this movie in English with Richard Gere. And uh, then you have also to visit Italy because there were a moment during the 50s, 40s, and 60s that they made the best movies in the world. And uh, for me as a director, Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini is an absolute masterpiece. And, you know, there are many movies, even I made one, uh, talking about a director in crisis, like in Pain and Glory. But this is a monument of that situation when a director has to make a movie but doesn't know what to do. So <laughs> Eight and a Half is obliged uh, to see. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Scorsese. So some 80s or 90s movie of Scorsese, Taxi Driver, for example, it is an absolute uh, masterpiece uh, to be seen. And what else? Uh, I don't know. There are so many. There are so many. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this is my advice. Just uh, go run and, and try to see these movies. And I promise you, and you can sue me if you don't like them. <laughs> that will be the best way of being uh, sitting down uh, during two hours. <laughs> This is perfect. Thank you so, so, so much for this conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your honesty and, and your generosity with your words. Thanks to Thank you. you, Carla, as well. It's been amazing. Now I'm now I'm even more energized to learn more Spanish after this conversation. I feel like as you were speaking, I was picking up some words, but I'm um, I'm feeling very, very good after our conversation. So thank you so much. And um, hopefully I will see you sooner rather than later okay. but again thank you so much uh, gracias por todo uh, good luck good luck I'm waiting for you next album I know that you are you are touring and I don't know if you have time but uh, I have you find time where they are not just to write your songs and there will be someone in Spain waiting for us for, for that waiting for you, your songs, and also when you will be on stage. I promise to be there. <laughs> Thank and you good, so much. Good, very good luck. Thank you. Thanks again to all of you for tuning in. And thanks to Pedro for joining me on this episode. I'm still pinching myself in disbelief and I can't wait to see Strange Way of Life when it premieres in 2023. For those of you looking for another slice of Pedro, you can find his list of the films he thinks everyone on earth should see in this week's issue of Service 95, our free weekly newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Service 95 
and let us know in our comments if you get the chance to check out any of his suggestions. I know I've got plenty to watch in the months ahead. Sending you all my love and I'll be sure to see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service. Oh, 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 oh